You're listening to Oh Shit, I'm the Boss Now with your host, Jackie Koch, the podcast with all the tips and tools to help you succeed when all of a sudden you have the realization that you're the one in charge. I am Jackie Koch, your host, and today I am sitting down to chat with Maria Marukian. Maria is a recognized organizational development practitioner specializing in training, coaching, and facilitation with a focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, and intercultural competence. She is the president of MSM Global Consulting, and she's a faculty member at the American University School for International Service. She has worked with all different types of organizations from nonprofits to very traditional government agencies and large companies to small companies and coaching with people one-on-one. Over the last two decades, Maria has trained and coached thousands of individuals around the world about how to build practices for better communication, fostering competent and respectful workplaces, and how to navigate conflict for meaningful culture change. Clients also include PBS, the National Park Services, National Institutes of Health, the World Bank, and the Association for Animal Welfare Advancement. And we dive into conversation around what diversity, equity, and inclusion actually means from her perspective, how you can start to really make a change within your organization to make sure that it is a culture where everybody feels as though they belong, and how to assess how you're doing, what steps to take to make improvements. And what I really love is that we talk about how your company, you really just have to focus on making it a place of belonging for your team. You don't have to get so caught up in this idea that you have to drastically change the world. And if you make changes within your company and within your team. So I'm really excited for you to listen into our conversation. Maria, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so glad we were finally able to make it happen. I've been looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for coming on. Me too, Jackie. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Okay. So before we dive in, can you give listeners a little background about what you do? And I always love a good kind of entrepreneur story and how you ventured into this world of entrepreneurship. That's what the podcast is about. So would love a little background about you and how you ended up getting, you know, in the seat that you're in. Absolutely. So I did not start my career as an entrepreneur, but I think I always had that entrepreneurial spirit that was percolating somewhere down there inside me. So I have, for the last 20 years, been doing organizational culture change, organizational development, facilitation, training, consulting, always with a specific focus on identity. So diversity, equity, inclusion, intercultural competence. And I actually started off in the nonprofit world and then moved over to the federal government, to the State Department. So I went from small organization to big bureaucracy and was there for a number of years. And then I think the entrepreneurial itch really (laughs) needed to be scratched. And so after a number of years of doing this work within larger organizations, I wanted to take the leap and start to work in a more hands-on way, specifically with a variety of different types of clients to explore what are some of the commonalities as well as the unique elements that make every organization come forward and want to or need to address issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. How does that look the same? How does it look different, whether we're talking about big organizations, global organizations, or tiny five-person units? And so 
That's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. I'll probably say I kind of dipped my toe in the water before diving fully in. So I had a full-time job and started taking on some clients. And it was my side hustle for a while. And it was really about 2016 that I realized I want to put myself fully into this. And I think that a lot of that was related to the increasing polarization that I was seeing not only reflected in our society, in our media, in our politics, but also how it was manifesting within our organizations and within our communities and within our families. And so I think part of the catalyst for going full time to really focus on this work and to be more directly involved in not just the operations of an organization, but doing the facilitation was because I felt like there was such a void when it came to people having the skills and the willingness to come together across their differences, to build those bridges, to connect and humanize each other rather than continuing to sort of live and invest in our proverbial echo chambers. So that's been a really driving force for me to continue doing the work of MSM Global. Yeah, awesome. Well, the work you do is obviously so important. I was going to say, especially now, but it's always been important. It's just finally like probably bubbling a little bit more up to the surface. I'm curious how you define diversity and inclusion. I feel like you hear it if you're listening to the show. You can't go online without seeing something about it. But I feel like there's also so many ways you can look at it. And I'm really curious how you define that specifically within companies. Yeah. So really simple definition of diversity that I use is it is all of those dimensions of our identity that make us similar to and different from one another. So that encompasses what we typically see as part of the equal employment opportunity protected classes, you know, the elements of our identities that we don't necessarily have a lot of control over that we can't change, whether that is our race or ethnic identification, our gender identity, our sexual orientation, our age, so on and so forth. But also all of those dynamic identities that make us who we are too, right? So it's everything from our religion and our political affiliation, where we grew up, our national origin, our marital status, relationship status, parental status, but also our identities within our organization, right? So what my role is, what work unit I'm in, even where I am within the organization. And particularly thinking about that in the respect of remote versus in-office work environments and sort of where and how people work and what sort of accessibility they have to leadership and decision-making because of that. So there's so many dimensions. I think a lot of times what happens is we get hamstrung in these conversations by only focusing on one facet of identity rather than looking at the totality and recognizing that every single one of us is bringing these unique stories with us into our organizations, into our teams, even if we're not conscious of it because of all of these identities that we belong to that have influenced the way we see the world, the way we show up in it, how we interpret one another's behaviors. So when I think about diversity, it's really that all-encompassing definition. And then inclusion is more about the environment, the culture, the container that we want to create for folks to be able to thrive, not in spite of those things that make us similar or different, but because of them. As human beings, just from a psychological perspective, all of us deeply yearn for a sense of belonging, right? We all want to feel, and I mean, that's just so 
baked into our survival instincts. There's safety in numbers, right? And so to have that sense of safety now means a sense of psychological safety. I want to know that I am going to be accepted and appreciated for my ideas, my opinions, my talents, my contributions. And I also want to know that I will be appreciated not only for how I fit within the organization, but also for what makes me unique. And so I think there's that sense of inclusion is really, it's not about, oh, we welcome you here and allow you to sit at the table, right? I think that's kind of a superficial idea of inclusion that we often hear. You know, we want to give everyone a seat at the table. But for me, inclusion is more about, are we co-designing an organization, an environment, a culture where everybody has co-ownership over Mm -hmm. how that culture is, what the norms are going to be for how we communicate so every single person feels that sense of value. Yeah, I love those definitions. And it's something that I think about a lot and probably not in the way that most people would think considering that I do HR. I feel like a lot of times it's on the HR. I guess if you see the video, you can see me doing air quotes. Like it's on the HR team to figure this stuff out, which I think is kind of a miss from an organization. But I think about this a lot in my own business, actually, because as I grow a team, I really am thinking a lot about my values and what I want to stand for as an organization. And one of them really is your definition of diversity and inclusion. My colleague and I are very different politically on a lot of things. And guess what? She's somebody that I love more than anybody. And we talk about it and I respect her opinion. She respects mine. I don't want to have a company where people feel like they can't share what they think because then that makes it so that I don't learn to maybe think differently, you know? And so I think about that a lot. And I think your definition of that encompasses that whole piece of it as well. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the work that you do because it is so important. I'm curious your thoughts, kind of stepping back to the first thing I said about how people rely on the HR team to do this work. Mm -hmm. Who should own it at a company? Mm -hmm. I'm curious your thoughts. You've been doing it a lot longer than me. Yes, absolutely. And I love that you said that kind of couching it under HR only is kind of a miss. And I agree with you because I think there are definitely roles and responsibilities that people who are in human resources must play because we're talking about humans. And yet at the same time, if it's only owned by HR, then one, you don't necessarily always have people who have the transferable skills to be able to do all of the work that's required for human resource management and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are distinct skills and areas of expertise. And two, what the research is bearing out is that even if you have, for example, if you've hired somebody within the organization, and often they also end up in sort of the human capital or HR offices, if you hire a chief diversity officer, for example, some of the research has shown that has not necessarily always led to greater performance for DEI. And the reason for that is because what often happens is, oh, if we hand it to HR or if we hand it to this one individual, then we abdicate responsibility for anyone else having to think about or change their behaviors or own the work that's required for us to really change the culture and the systems. And so you you end up with people being burnt out or being scapegoated, set up to fail in a lot of instances. So the, the approach that I often recommend with leaders is 
you can't just say everybody needs to own DEI, figure it out either. Because again, this kind of work takes years for us to become experienced in and skilled at. But everybody needs to have some sense of accountability and knowledge of what it looks like to embed diversity, equity, inclusion within their pocket of the organization. Having some dedicated individuals who are directly responsible and have the skills and the resources to be able to really strategically address the the issues that organization needs to address to foster DEI, but also giving everybody, especially people in leadership and management positions, the tools as well as the accountability to make sure that they're managing their teams and they're making decisions in ways that are promoting equity and inclusion. Everything from having it embedded in the overall strategic plan, but then also taking the time to ensure that every division of the organization, everyone who's in a leadership or decision-making position is required and expected to look at how do we do our work in such a way that we are intentionally promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion wherever we sit within the organization. When I think about this topic, it seems, I don't know if I'm going to hate saying this on a public forum, but it seems like it should be so basic or Mm. so common sense, or just like, if you're a good boss, a lot of these things naturally show up. And not that you shouldn't focus on it by all means, because you improve what you focus on and all of that stuff. And I guess history would show that that hasn't worked. But I feel like when you talk about diversity inclusion, it can feel like just another thing we have to do. And I feel like managers go into it two ways, truly wanting it and then it becoming not a priority because it's something else on their to-do list or feeling like they have to do it because that's what society is expecting of them right now. Discuss. I don't know. I don't know the question there. I'm curious (laughs) on your thoughts on either of those. Yes. I'm resounding yes. And I think pulling this back and first and foremost recognizing that just philosophically, the vast majority of us are well-intentioned, generous, fair-minded. And so people in organizations and particularly people in management and leadership positions, of course, they want to do the good thing and they want to do right by their staff. And so I think we have to sort of level the playing field and recognize that we are all good-hearted kind people. And every single one of us has a story. And our stories are filled with both joy and opportunities and laugh and also pain and grief and adversity, right? So I think identifying that commonality is important because a lot of times, to your point, this feels like not just a one more thing I have to take on, but also if I'm in a position of power, especially if I belong to certain identities that have given me societal advantages, if I'm white, if I'm male, if I'm cisgender, if I'm heterosexual, so on and so forth, I'm automatically feeling like I'm under the spotlight and that I'm being seen as the enemy or the villain. And so I think we have to sort of override that narrative because it's so detrimental to the work. And yes, this does in many ways feel like this should just be common sense, just be a good person, just be a thoughtful, kind leader. And all of us as thoughtful, kind leaders and contributors in our organizations, we have our own blind spot based on not only how we've lived and the experiences we've had, but also the experiences we have not had, that we have never had to experience because of the identities that we belong to. 
And so that's through no fault of our own, but it does require us to do some examination, some self-reflection. And also just from a cultural standpoint, there are certain ways that I'm going to interpret other people's behavior. And there are certain internalized messages. And the research shows this explicitly. We may believe one thing, but we will make decisions that are in direct opposition to those consciously held beliefs a lot of times because of those internalized associations and stereotypes. And that's just a part of our conditioning. And so I think what makes this work so hard is that it often is so deeply buried and invisible, especially a lot of times to those of us in seats of power, that it becomes really sort of overwhelming to think about, well, how do I even begin this? And is it my responsibility to counteract systems of oppression? I'm just trying to like get the job done and make sure I'm contributing to the bottom line and Mm -hmm. keeping my job and my people's positions safe. So I totally acknowledge and appreciate the sense of frustration and confusion and just overwhelm that people come to with this. I sometimes struggle if it's even my place to talk about because I do come from a really privileged background and upbringing and stuff like that. And so I appreciate you bringing that up because it is something that I truly struggle with. And then even saying it out loud for somebody to hear, it's like, oh, they're showing up again. I do feel like, but if I don't say them, and if I'm not honest about it, how am I going to get better? And so I appreciate you bringing that up because it is something that can be challenging. And especially if you're a leader leading a team, it's like, I feel uncomfortable bringing it up. But isn't that like when we should bring it up? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's where allyship comes into play, right? Any situation in which we are in a position of power or status because of where we sit within the organization, our seniority, our tenure, our influence, or because of some identities that we belong to, there's extra work that we can and should be doing to be the voice, to raise attention so that responsibility is not always falling on the shoulders of the people who've been on the receiving end of harm. And I think that's where I've noticed a lot of my clients struggle. And I do a lot of coaching with leaders who identify as white. And I think that's one of the challenges is often I don't want to say or do something wrong and cause more harm. Or I find myself kind of freezing up because someone says something that, oh, ouch, that's probably not appropriate. But I don't know how to respond in a way that's not going to make the situation worse or create havoc. So I just don't say anything. And again, I can resonate with that. I understand, you know, what is so important, though, is for us to be able to give the tools and the opportunities for people to practice having those conversations in a compassionate and constructive way so that it's not you did something bad and you created harm. Mm Because then we end up with people getting defensive and deflecting and, if anything, maybe complying with the request to change rather than really feeling a sense of like, oh, okay. I learned something from this, I'm going to change, right? So a lot of the work that I do is giving people in organizations the tools to be able to have those dialogues, those constructive conversations. Again, not coming from a place of, you might not realize this, but what you did was really wrong and bad and terrible. But hey, can we hit the pause button for a moment? Because I'm having a reaction and I just kind of want to explore this with you. And so I find that really leaning into curiosity and just slowing down the process is a great, easy, okay, I'll, not exactly always easy, right? But a simple, simple way <laughs> to nudge 
not just in the direction of inclusion. And again, it goes back to that notion of psychological safety that if we're on a team where I know that I can count on my team members to give me that feedback, to help me learn and grow, because inevitably I am going to say or do something and step in it. And I need to feel that same sense of responsibility and commitment to my team members to do the same. So it requires a lot of trust and vulnerability, which we're not necessarily always good at manifesting in our organization. No, not at all. Not at all. Something that I'm think that came up as we've been talking is it can be overwhelming, especially with the age of social media. So overwhelming, like everywhere you turn, you're doing something wrong or there's something else to be worried about or there's another cause you have to support. It just can feel so overwhelming that you tend to like shut yourself off from it or you can't. I know I do sometimes as I'm just like my brain can't actually deal and process all of this stuff. And so just kind of shut it off, get to work, do the thing. Because it feels like too much. It feels like, well, I'm never going to solve this big problem in the world. So why even bother? And I wonder if reframing it as if I can just make this little circle a little bit better, imagine Mm -hmm. what impact that could have. And that bite-sized reframe, if you're at a big company, like I can make my little team better. Is that what you recommend is like looking at it in that lens of like, taking like bites of it? I don't know. I feel like that makes me feel less overwhelmed. Yeah, absolutely, Jackie. I love that because we have to be able to take those bite sizes so we can digest it a little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're going to get really sick. But I think you hit on something really important too in that oftentimes what I see happen, and this has certainly been playing out over the last three years in our organizations, is that there's some catalytic event that happens And there's a media uproar and there is this peer pressure that sort of waves through organizations that you must take a stand, you must make a statement. And I certainly agree in many ways that it's important for organizational leaders to acknowledge what's happening in the world around us, because whether it's directly impacting our organization, our mission, our workforce, the communities we serve or indirectly affecting us, we need to call attention to it. Where I think the rhetoric or that practice of putting out a statement has become problematic is that just it becomes performative, right? And then the sort of pushback that I often hear from leaders is, well, if I make a statement to this, either someone's going to have a problem with it or, you know, it's the slippery slope mentality. Well, then I'm going to have to make a statement for this and this and this and this. And so a lot of things that I talk about with leaders and managers is, number one, If you are truly committing yourself to allyship and to diversity, equity, inclusion in your organization with your team, that means that you have to prepare yourself to accept and receive feedback, clap back, and push back. And just be ready for that. Expect that it's going to happen. And two, it always comes back to values for me, right? So if I can connect whatever's happening in the world around us back to the core values of the organization or my team, something as simple as just reaching out to the people in my immediate vicinity in my team and asking, hey, I just wanted to check in with you. How are folks feeling about this? Do we want to just take a few minutes? Is there anything that people feel like they would like to share? Or to just reach out one-on-one with folks and say, hey, I know that because of things that you've shared with me before, this is directly impacting you. I just wanted to create the space 
and let you know that I'm here to listen. That's such an easy, simple thing that we can be doing as leaders to show compassion for people. What happens a lot of times is leaders will do it for one group, but not for another. And I'll give you an example of how this played out a few years ago. So I was working with an organization where a woman came to me and said, I was really frustrated and I haven't been able to talk to anybody about this when the shooting at the Pulse nightclub happened. And we have a couple members of the LGBTQ community in our organization who also happen to be white men. Everybody on the staff came out of the woodwork. Our director made a statement in front of everyone saying this affects our community and we're here in solidarity. And a lot of people just coming up to the people who represent that identity group saying, are you okay? I'm here for you. And she said, when Michael Brown was killed, no one came to me. And as a Black woman, that directly impacted me and my community. And the director didn't say anything. And nobody on the staff said anything. So there was this uproar for my white colleague around an identity that he belongs to, but it was just deafening silence. And again, this is not to measure which identity dimension is more or less important for us to be addressing, but just recognizing that people are going to be experiencing these world events in different ways, depending on how salient it is to them. And so can we just kind of, as leaders, take that responsibility to notice and name how it might be affecting people rather than staying silent or just ignoring it because it doesn't impact us directly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because I do a lot of recruiting, a lot of times hiring managers say they want a diverse candidate pool for vanity metrics, right? To increase their diversity, like all of these things. And there's things that we put in place to make sure that we're, you know, creating as diverse and inclusive of a hiring process and all that stuff. It's so much more than just speaking to a certain amount of people from different classes. And we educate them on that. But I'm curious if there's metrics or how could a company assess how they're doing? I know this goes deep. And so Mm. it's probably not like a super quick answer, but like, how could a listener to the show assess how they're doing, performing within their company for diversity and inclusion? And then what steps could they take or what metrics could they look at to look in the future if they've made changes in six months or a year? I know Mm -hmm. it's a loaded question, but it's something that's always asked of me. And I bet there's a lot of listeners on the show who are asking that same question of like, okay, do I need to assess where I'm at first before I start doing these things or what have you? So what would you tell them? Yes, to all of that. Assess where you are. And I think sometimes to the extent that organizations can go a little bit deeper than just looking at the numbers of people who are represented in the current workforce. So I'll give you a quick example. I was doing some work with a federal government agency not too long ago, and and this may not always be possible for smaller organizations to gather all of this demographic data, but their leadership was under the impression we're doing a lot of work to recruit for racial and ethnic diversity and gender diversity. And we just don't seem to be getting the numbers that we were expecting, but it's not from a lack of trying because we've done such a great job of reaching out and building relationships with HBCUs and tribal colleges and universities. And maybe we should just try to do that more. And we kind of disaggregated the data and we looked at the hiring process. We said, okay, so if you look at the number of racial and ethnic minorities and women who are applying for the positions, 
Yes, there's more diversity than you've had in the past. Now let's look at that next stage. When you look at the people who are considered qualified to go forward to the next stage, then we see a little bit more of a drop-off. Then let's look at the third stage. When it comes to interviews and who is referred for that final interview process, you see a significant drop in representation. So what that tells us is your problem is not at that front end of the job postings and where you're posting these recruitment, you know, on recruitment boards and whatnot. That's going pretty well. Where you are falling short is in terms of when the humans that are involved in looking at and determining who is qualified and who should be referred to as a prime candidate for the position. And so that shifted their viewpoint. So then it came down to, okay, so from a strategy perspective, we don't need to be putting more money and resources toward recruiting and building relationships. We'll keep going with that. But what we really need to do is focus on breaking down some of the implicit biases that are impacting us when it comes to HR hiring managers. So then what I'm sure comes up, I'm sure you've heard this, is, well, we just want to hire the best person for the job. I'm going to sound a little bit harsh when I say this, and but like, it's not our fault. We're not getting the level of qualities or they're not meeting the metrics. And so I had this thought actually on a run the other day, and I was like, I think everything needs to be flipped upside down as to what actually qualifies someone as a good candidate, mm-hmm. like completely flipped. It's like you requiring someone with industry experience, does that actually help you? It does yeah. 10 years of leading people actually make them more qualified? And it's like, I don't know, I'm curious your thoughts. I had that on a run and I was like, mm-hmm. literally, I think we need to just completely redefine what makes somebody qualified for jobs. Absolutely. That has been the major sticking point because there is this sort of binary idea that we either get diversity or we get quality. Yeah. And there are, that's such a problematic narrative. Totally. And it is so subjective in a lot of ways. Yes, absolutely. There are certain objective criteria that we have to use to make sure somebody is going to be able to perform the duties as assigned of that job. And there's a lot of gray area in there. And so I think a lot of times what happens is, especially once somebody either when we review the resumes and or when we have those interviews, Just inherently, because of the way that our brains function, we tend to gravitate toward people who remind us of ourselves. And yes, I'm going to perceive Jackie as qualified because she went to a similar institution of higher ed. She went through a similar program as what I did. She's got the same kind of professional experience that I do. And we had this great conversation about our kids. And she really reminds me of somebody. Who is it? Oh, me. I always say, oh, and did you see her shoes? They were so cute. (laughs) So it's not to say we should compromise quality by any stretch, but I think it's really challenging the potential for our biases to get in the way of who we perceive as qualified. And to your point, pulling away any of that subjective data that, you know, does this really tell us whether someone's qualified? What are some of the other things that would indicate to us that this person has the qualifications to be able to perform the job and not to try to hire for culture fit? but to hire for cultural contribution, right? What can this person bring because maybe they have a different resume, a different type of experience Mm -hmm. that could actually contribute to some of the goals and strategies that we want to, you know, push forward in the future. And I think even just getting better at actually assessing somebody's ability to problem solve, like you need a good problem solver. 
And yet you yeah. think someone who's done project management for 10 years is obviously a good problem solver. And you're like, no, that doesn't actually assess that at all. You know, and I'm, I'm guilty of doing all of these things, too. But to your point, it's not something that gets fixed even in six months all the time. So I guess the place I'd like to go now is like, how do you know if you're like trending in the right direction and making mm. progress and starting to really create a great, inclusive place for people to work? So I think identifying some specific benchmarks that would indicate progress for your organization is super important. And to do that early on, I think a lot of organizations are sort of scared too because they say, well, what if we don't meet those expectations and then have we failed? Like, no, let's put forth metrics that would indicate progress to us so that we can then gauge, have we made progress? And if not, then maybe we need to reflect and reinvest in the practices that we're using. And absolutely, representation, looking at, again, every stage of the recruitment and hiring process, as well as looking at performance evaluations and promotions and mentoring opportunities, right? So at every kind of stage of the employee life cycle, how are we doing in terms of ensuring that we are giving ample opportunities, especially for those individuals who are less represented in our organization or our industry? And then also doing some climate assessment. I think there's this question often around like, well, how do you measure inclusion? How do you measure equity? Well, inclusion, yeah, it is amorphous, but people know it when they feel it. And so asking for that qualitative data, and you can also use surveys and get the, get the numbers too. We did this actually with one client where we did a baseline assessment and we asked people a number of questions around diversity, equity, and inclusion. How do you feel? Do you feel a sense of belonging working in this organization? Do you feel like you have opportunities to provide input into decisions that impact you? Do you feel that the leadership would take appropriate action if somebody was engaging in bullying behavior, discrimination, harassment, right? So asking all these questions to gather that sense of how are people experiencing the organization? And then we disaggregated that data so we could look at, are there differences across identities? So are, for example, women having a different experience or do they have a different perception in some of these areas than men and so on and so forth? And then we came back based on that assessment. We provided recommendations. We did a lot of training. We supported this organization in terms of their overall DEI strategic plan. And they put a ton of effort into really promoting diversity, equity, inclusion as a key indicator of progress and a strategic goal. We came back two years later and we did the same assessment that we had done previously. And in every single category, for every single question, there was a statistically significant increase in approval ratings. Mm -hmm. And when we asked people some additional questions around what of all of these different activities and efforts that the organization has put forth around DEI, what do you feel has helped move the needle the most? It's really interesting. And I was not expecting that. I was thinking, oh, it'll be training because that's what we were doing. He said, so good. <laughs> it's my wonderful training. He said, it's the communication from leadership because the communication from leadership has become more prominent and continuous, that they're frequently talking about this and saying that we have work to do and that they care about it. That's what told them that the needle was moving. And so I think that's really important data, right? And so yeah. we don't know that. And then to be able to say, okay, so now that we know this, where do you want to put your efforts and your energy in the next couple of years to help move the needle even more? 
So I think that there are ways that we can measure progress. It just takes a little bit of extra effort. And we Mm -hmm. have to reach out and ask people. And we have to actually listen to them and believe them when they tell us how they're experiencing the organization. Yes. I mean, so often you'll, I'm sure you experience this all the time, is it gets very defensive sometimes. That's not what we're creating. You might be accurate and that's not what you're intending to create, but that's not how people are experiencing it. And there's a difference for sure. Oh my gosh. I've loved this conversation. I feel like I want to ask you so many things, but I know we're coming (laughs) up on time. And I know you also have resources for people to learn about this stuff. So can you share a little bit about somebody listening to the show, where they can go to learn more about what they can do within their teams and within their organizations? Absolutely. So a few resources. I also have a podcast that I co-host with my colleague, Roger Moriano. It's called Culture Stew. And we're in our fifth season and we bring in guests who represent not only the field of diversity, equity and inclusion, intercultural competence, but also leaders from a variety of different sectors, authors, academics who are talking about organizational development and change and social justice. So there's a ton to be able to glean from those interviews. And then I also have a book called Diversity, Equity, Inclusion for Trainers, Fostering DEI in the Workplace. And that was published by the Association for Talent Development last year. And it's been really interesting. I'm excited to be able to say that we've sold almost 10,000 copies. Holy cow, that's amazing. (laughs) And a lot of the folks who have reached out to me said, I'm not even in training and talent development, but somebody recommended your book. And I found it so helpful because I don't have any formal background or experience, but this felt like a comprehensive guide that wrapped my head around and it gave me specific actions I could take with my team and things that I can do to reflect myself on how I'm showing up in the workplace. And so that was really invaluable for Mm -hmm. me to know that this is applicable for people who are not necessarily your formal training professionals, but maybe those accidental trainers, those advocates, those people who want to be allies. So those are two resources that are available. And then, of course, people can visit my website, msmglobalconsulting.com, and find out a lot more about us. We also So I have a newsletter folks can sign up for, and people can just reach out to me on social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, and hit me up with any questions that they have. Well, thank you for all your work you're doing in this space and all of the education you're giving people because it's so needed. And I think also it can be so emotionally charged that having a safe space to go and learn some of this stuff, I think is just so welcomed. So thank you so much. And more importantly, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so great to meet you. And I hopefully see other ways that we can partner together and keep in touch in the future. So thank you so much. Definitely. Thank you for having me on. Well, that's a wrap on another episode of Oh Shit, I'm the Boss Now. Because guess what? You're the boss now. You listen to the show because you care about doing the people stuff right in your business. And I commend you for that. At my company, People Principles, our mission is to help more small businesses succeed. And we believe that building a thriving, high-performing team with the right systems in place is crucial to making that happen. That's why we've got our incredible toolkit shop. It's your one-stop destination for everything HR and team-related. 
each toolkit is loaded with everything we've ever done in-house with high-growth startups, from hiring processes to performance management to handbooks. It's all there. And we've built these toolkits specifically with you in mind, the small business owner, because what you need at 10 to 30 people is very different from what you need over 100 people. So don't wait and head over to peopleprinciples.co forward slash toolkits and explore our complete people operations toolkits. It's like having an HR expert in your back pocket, walking you through the journey to building a thriving team and a thriving business.